This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Jonathan Ford about brand design and about an early rough patch in his career. Is it what I'm wearing? Do I look too formal? Do I look too casual? Do I look strange? Is my work any good? Am I a good designer? I'm, I'm terrible. I went through all these emotions and I can really remember it and thinking, you know, this is just not good. Here's Debbie Millman. Odds are you've probably enjoyed an innocent brand smoothie. Maybe you've also enjoyed a Green and Black's chocolate bar, then topped off the evening with an absolute martini. If so, your experience of these products was shaped by Pearl Fisher, the design company that created the packaging and identities for these brands and many others. Jonathan Ford is a co-founder and creative partner with the firm. He joins me today to talk about the business of branding and design and about his illustrious career. Welcome to Design Matters, Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you here. It's a pleasure. So I have a question I've been dying to ask you. What's with the name Pearl Fisher? <laughs> well, um, branding a design agency is an interesting uh, thing to do. And you, if you start your agency up, then um, you only get a chance to get it right once, really. And when we uh, started out our business in 92, we, um, we found it the hardest thing to do was to name ourselves. And I think to this day, brand naming is the hardest uh, creative act that you can go through. We knew that we uh, really didn't want to name the company after ourselves. We wanted to create Well, Why? because I think there's a lot of those around and, mm-hmm. um, and it's undifferentiated. It means that invariably the companies get led by egos and can be tied to the fortune of an individual. And if that person decides to move on, it can affect that company. Plenty of examples of that working and examples of it not working, but we didn't want to have that. We felt that if we were going to design for brands, then we should be a brand of design. And uh, anyway, we still couldn't name ourselves right up to the last moment when the uh, bank manager was calling us and saying, you know, if you're going to start your business, I need to know the name in the next half an hour because I'm printing your checkbooks and I still don't have a name. <laughs> Here's motivation <laughs> yeah. for you. So, my, so uh, my two partners, Mike Branson and Karen Wellman and I were, you know, we put our heads together and uh, we had one final push and uh, it was Mike who said, well, if we're all about trying to find the best in every brand, we need to think about metaphors and there are these Japanese pearl fishers, these girls that dive down to the seabed to bring up the you know, the pearls that are growing in the oysters. At which point Karen and I both said, well, that's it. We want to be called Pearl Fisher because it was about bringing out the best and being prepared to you know, put some effort into it. And so that's why we called ourselves Pearl Fisher. So ironically, people to this day still think there is a Mrs. Pearl Fisher. And, oh, that's uh, wonderful. It never even occurred to me. Uh, yeah. So, Pearl Fisher, uh, yeah, of course. So, Mr. and Mrs. Pearl Fisher. So branding does kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's a fail-safe brand name, but anyway, it's, um, it's a statement of intent and it's worked well for us. So when did you decide that you wanted to be a designer and then a brand designer? Well, I actually think at a very early age, I mean, in my teens, I kind of had a very strong desire to move into design. And, you know, around about 15, 16, I probably felt I knew what I wanted to be a graphic designer. Art was always in my blood. Why? Uh, I How? Could just draw. I liked drawing. I liked, uh, I liked expressing kind of myself through art. And I had a very good art teacher who um, believed in me. 
His name was Mr. Pope, and uh, he was fantastic. He kind of really kind of uh, encouraged me, and that got me into art school, and I did my one-year foundation course, and then I did my degree course in graphic design, by which time I was kind of well on the path for uh, kind of a career in design, I hoped. Was it by accident that you chose to go into brand design specifically, or was it that something you were always aspiring to? Well, in the 80s, you know, there were a few supergroups of design. Pentagram was still is a company to be greatly respected and admired. They were back then still doing it. I mean, they were ahead of everybody else. But very quickly, brands and design groups that specialized in brands managed to establish themselves in the 80s. And it was the Thatcher, Reagan kind of consumer boom years. And Michael Peters was a designer who was making great strides in the UK building a company very fast and doing some incredibly exciting award-winning work in the area of packaging, which had been up until that time sort of largely overlooked as a credible design area. Why do you think so? Why do you think that is? I think graphic design has evolved and is continuing to evolve, I might add, um, you know, extremely fast. And I think that you know, art and commerce are very closely linked and design fits in there very importantly. And I think as consumers started to make uh, choices based on design and branding, the importance of design and branding went right through the roof. And traditional graphic designers probably weren't geared up for thinking in a way that brands you know, needed to. So it allowed a new breed of graphic designers to take that stage. So Michael Peters, I think, really owned that slot with uh, probably four or five other big names and um, in that time. And so I managed to uh, get a job working for him at a, at a, as a junior designer um, shortly after leaving uh, art school, having gone for about 18 interviews at other companies as well. 18? Well, yeah, you know. That's you a, counted. That's another – it was actually 18 interviews. It wasn't it – wasn't, it was quite soul-searching kind of that summer of 84 trying to find a job, you know. Was I any good? And then I went through all the angst that every, probably every, any decent designer goes through. Eighteen what? interviews. We're not. We're not moving off that, this topic for a moment. I want to talk okay, to you more yeah. about that. I feel I'm not going to get off the hook on this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just interesting, and I think it's very inspiring for listeners to hear about somebody that's ultimately been as successful as you are, struggle and, and figure out how to get out of that struggle. So, what do you attribute your lack of interview success at that time as being? Probably uh, a combination of factors. A little bit of ignorance a heck of a lot of competition. And um, when I was had my degree show in 84, we all publicized our show like any decent art school does. And I was really hell-bent on working at Pentagram. That was where I really wanted to work. And there was one of their partners, a well-known designer um, of the 70s and 80s, Mervyn Kalansky, came along. I, in fact, I opened the doors privately for him to have, you know, his own sort of viewing of the show because, you know, I was trying to kind of make a connection with somebody who I felt could maybe kind of be beneficial to me. And um, that led to several conversations with Pentagram. And because I was really hanging on to work there, I had all my hopes pinned on it. It then came as a real kind of shock to find out that that wasn't going to happen and uh, even though did they I, tell you why uh, did they give you any reason it was just there was too many design young designers coming out and they could take the pick of whoever they wanted and i think mervyn kalansky could see potential in me but you know, there wasn't room in his team so i was seeing some of the other partners so having been turned down by pentagram the other company that was like a joint first in my kind of aspirations was michael peters so i set out 
you know, trying to get that interview with Michael Peters. But they were very busy. They were dynamic. And that company was almost too big in my mind to think that I could possibly work there because I was seeing such exciting work coming from their studio. But I did a series of things. I designed my own kind of uh, mailer that was not a CV, that was something that would stand out. And um, I created something that would uh, attract some attention. I sent that through to the creative director. I phoned. I kind of spoke to the PA. I did all these things. And I just hung on and hung on and hung on. And they said, we'll get back to you. He's busy. He's in a meeting. And I just had to find the right balance of not hassling too much, but also just keeping myself sort of in the frame of reference. And that process went on for um, all through the summer of 84. In the so mean- all while you were doing the other 17 interviews. Yeah. Um, and then I went into this kind of super crisis mode about, is it what I'm wearing? Do I look too formal? Do I look too casual? Do I look, do I look strange? Is my work any good? Am I a good designer? I'm, I'm terrible. I went through all these emotions. And I can really remember it and thinking, you know, this is just not good. But the interview with Michael Peters was was kind of like hanging in there. It was like a carrot that I couldn't quite get, you know. And um, I think I was close to giving up. And in the end, I thought I'd give it one final go. So I um, I phoned the PA of Michael Peters himself and um, and said, look, you know, I've been trying now for some time. You know, I just need to know, is this going to work out? Or am I just turning into a, into a pain? And she said, you know what? I know you've been trying. Let me just go and ask Glenn Tutsell, the creative director, if he can see you um, this week. And um, the message came back that he could. And um, and he was uh, happy to see me. And I went in and uh, I had an interview with him. And um, like in all these things, there was just good chemistry. And I think he could see potential in me. And, um, and he hired me uh, the very next day. And uh, it started off with, you know, could you come in to do some like – two days of just helping out around the studio. And I said, sure, I'll be there at nine o'clock. And I didn't even think about getting paid. I just wanted to just kind of go and get the experience. And, and then within a couple of days, it was right. You know, you're on the team. And that was it, really. But, I mean, three months of self-doubt. And one funny thing was, was that uh, right back at the beginning when I was thinking about pentagram and so fixated on pentagram at my degree show people came and some people left business cards and things like that and uh said you must call me and uh and i had to, i'd had this business card that somebody had left on my on my table and I'd, i never called them back because i never heard of the company i thought i don't know who they are um, you know they don't sound very interesting to me <laughs> you know this is an art student who should be really going after every opportunity and um and i'd looked at the card again at about sort of two months through my drought of kind of you know opportunity and uh, it was a company called coley porter bell who um (laughs) (laughs) who had started out probably about a couple of years earlier were fast becoming a major force of design during the 80s and and still a still a very credible and you know great company um anyway so i'd really kind of by not following that little detail up i had denied myself of the opportunity of being part of maybe another company which did extremely well during the 80s it's interesting how these what seem to be very random decisions end up shaping our whole lives and and the things that we get rejected from or the things that we get accepted by yeah. can can be very arbitrary yeah and yet we we tend to define ourselves by those rejections or those acceptances we do and uh i think people that deal with rejection and this business is a hard business we all know how hard this business is and uh running an agency these days, you know, rejection is part of it. Being when you're, you know, one of the people that it's at the the front end of running a business, like, you know, you and I are and people that do that kind of stuff for us. 
we have to deal with a lot of rejection and um and it makes the successes all the much nicer of course but it does make you to this day question you know am i any good is this oh, yeah, it, absolutely know? and i uh, could have completely polar opposite feelings about what i do in a day sure. based on the kind of response that i'm getting from my clients the best advice that anyone's ever given me one of my best friends has, has said is you just have to be yourself and you have to trust your instincts and um, if you can do that in this business, it will get you through because it's all about being true to yourself. And that's what we deal with really as designers is, is expressing you know, strong truths. Well, from what I understand, I read that you firmly believe that a good idea can't come from a computer. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that because it seemed that in all the research that I was doing on you, that kept coming up as something that you hold as one of your truths. Yeah, I, I believe in design, which is founded on strong ideas. You know, there are designers that are fantastic stylists and um, all credit to them. I am not a great stylist designer. In fact, my entire design team are 10 times better than me. My creative directors, Mark in New York and Natalie in London, are just so much better than I am. But they all know and I believe uh, and I remind them every day that I'm looking for great ideas, an idea that is well executed through design is hugely powerful because when you design for brands with ideas in them, you give them something that is hugely protectable. You give them their reason for being, you give them their point of difference, all the kind of things that a brand needs to do. And uh, you engage with consumers to create really powerful desire. So you know, computers are there are, are immensely powerful tools for us to express ourselves. But I've never seen a computer kind of come up with a solution. If you are a decent designer, you'll want to define what your brief is that you're working to, and that brief should be very clear what it is you're trying to communicate, and that, that objective should be unique to every particular brand that you're working on. And that objective, if it's clearly defined, you know, through strategic thinking should enable you to come up with a solution that is unique to it. I truly believe that strategic thinking is linked to brilliant, brilliant uh, creative execution. One of the most successful and I think alluring identity that you've worked on in, in the recent past is the Innocent brand. So can you talk a little bit about how that strategic thinking fueled that really charming and whimsical and wonderful design. Well, Innocent is a, an amazing brand. It, uh, in the 12 to 15 years it's been around, it's redefined, I think, you know, how major brands think about themselves. And yet it's just, it was three or four guys kind of trying a product out on a weekend. And, uh, you know, they went to a festival and they, they set up a stall and they made fruit smoothies and they asked the audience to, uh, that was, that the bought their smoothies to vote with the empty bottles, you know, they said, if Innocent should carry on doing this, then put your bottles in the yes bin. And if you think they should go back to their day jobs, put them in the no bin. <laughs> and of course, the yes bin was, was filled with these empties. You know, it was love for this brand. And really, that set the tone. And I, and I really have to be honest about Innocent. And, I, and I've, I always try and make this very clear. Innocent came to us about five or six years into their existence. So they had really created, you know, I think the kind of the cornerstone of that brand identity. And it created a tone of voice and, uh, and a unique look. When they came to us, they had suffered the usual problem that I find with many entrepreneurial and challenger brands, which is that they, they grow fast. They become 
chaotic very quickly. Their focus gets distracted because their market growth is kind of happening extremely fast. And so they they can actually start to water down what they built in the first place. And our role was to consolidate everything and use design to really crystallize all of the kind of powerful visual equities that they had. And that worked extremely well for them. And the interesting part of this exercise that we did for them was it actually threw up that one of their products was not as pure and innocent as the rest of them. And it was really? a, yeah, and it was a product called Innocent Juicy Water. And so they'd added it after about five years. And this was a, a blend of water, fruit juice, and sugar. And so the fact that it had like less juice and sugar and a lot of water in it, it was a more lighter, refreshing beverage, meant that it just didn't fit with just pure fruit. So we said, you know, if you really wanted to be innocent and really pure about everything, you should take that and, and turn it into another brand. And uh, so we, we, we did another project with them where we took the Innocent Juicy Water and we, we recommended taking off this brand name, Innocent, creating a new brand name, which was called This Water. And um, they bought into that idea. They could see the logic that it made sense. And their major retailer was Starbucks. And Starbucks, their reaction was, okay, so you're one of the coolest brands around and you're saying to us you should take off the innocent brand name and replace it with another one and you expect this to be more successful. And the combined answer between Pearl Fisher and Innocent was, yes, we do, because it will be a clearer proposition for both types of products and actually you can build the juicy water proposition into something else. And it worked. And a year later, this water, as it was rebranded, became a major success and uh, increased their distribution by several hundred percent. And uh, and it's Innocent is now owned by Coca-Cola, believe it or not. Oh, it is? Yeah. So, you know, and, uh, and I see... I hope you had some stock. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I'd had stock in green and black, so I wouldn't need to run a design company if I'd done that. But, uh, yeah. So what made you decide to run your own design company? You started your company in 1992. So what made you decide to, to do this? A combination of factors. Michael Peters had grown a lot during the 80s, and I'd gone from being a junior designer in 84 to then a group head and then a design director. And uh, Michael had also gone publicly listed on the stock exchange. It was one of the first design companies to do that and was a very brave move. And it was all part of this kind of Thatcher, Reagan sort of boom time. And um, by 1989, there were 500 people working for Michael Peters. And it was the modern Bauhaus of design, I think, really. It was a truly amazing experience to go through. But none of us could see what was coming next. Nor you could know, Michael. And, and exactly. And um, and. The recession came and, uh, you know, the Wall Street crash happened, uh, you know, around about that time. And, um, well, everything kind of imploded. And um, so he went into receivership and uh, Chapter 11. And I, by that time, had moved, started working for him in New York. And uh, I was the creative director here in New York for, for the company. And I'd spent a year watching him go from being this amazing success to gradually kind of going to this demise. And so I then went through a two-year period where, where we uh, rebranded ourselves and uh, became, you know, what is now essentially your company. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, not, not that we ever worked together. It's no, a disclaimer for the listeners. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I felt that after, you know, two more years in New York, I had a choice to make. Did I want to make you know, America my life and be part of kind of a business out here that I was a, a part of or as a designer, was I going to take control of my own destiny and once again sort of 
you know, put myself to the test. And, uh, and I suppose really I've never shirked from those kind of those big challenges. And they, 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 you know, stepping out to the unknown is full of fear. And I'm, I am interested in the theme of fear a lot. Anyway. Why? I've, I've, well, uh, wait, no, 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 no uh, anyway there. Yeah, <laughs> I love the way you try to skirt these issues. <laughs> yeah. Well, so why are you so interested in fear? Because I think the creative process is actually I think everyone kids themselves or they think it's a joyous, creative thing the whole time and everyone looks at our industry and goes, oh, it's so glamorous. The fact of the matter is, is that there is, you know, enormous angst that uh, goes through the whole process of design. The brief gets written and, uh, you know, it goes into the, the studio and everyone is, I think everyone wants to do great work. Everyone wants to produce great work. If you're a young designer, you want to make sure your idea goes through and so you're kind of like, you know, how can I do the best work? And uh, and sometimes the temptation will be to emulate others uh, because you see somebody, you know, that company did great work. Oh, that's a great piece of design. You know, I'll just do something like that, you know. And that's a reaction to, you know, wanting to sort of be like somebody else, you know. Well, and really, I think the most original kind of thinking comes from sort of being fearless and actually sort of putting all that stuff away and thinking you know, clearly about stuff. But, you know, you have to think of it from the client's point of view as well sometimes. And they're, they're full of fear too. I mean, if you're in charge of a, of a major brand and you've commissioned a, a design company to, uh, you know, redesign something for you, you know, you want to make sure they're going to get it right because it's not automatic that what we do through redesign is going to bring success. So from a client's point of view, they've got fear in their, their mind. Did I make the right choice? When they look at creative work, which is truly fearless and brave, it can be very shocking and destabilizing for them because, you know, even though we all signed up to this brief, they may not uh, know what that means until they see it. And that can be a major shock. And, uh, you know, how many times have we seen clients go, well, I need to think about this and get back to you? Well, that's never very good. And, then, you know, they are thinking about, you know, at worst, what happens if this, if this you know, fails, you know, my job, all this kind of stuff. So... I'm more interested in working with the people that are, as I said, that are fearless and show a kind of like a, a healthy disrespect for conventions and what's gone before. Because if you follow what's gone before, you're going to kind of do what has always come out. And, uh, you know, it's quite well used, the quote by George Bernard Shaw, but, you know, the reasonable man adapts the world around him. The unreasonable man expects the world to adapt to him. So my advice to young designers or anyone actually that wants to make progress in life is, you know, be prepared to be a bit unreasonable. You know, don't add to what's out there already. You know, your duty is to sort of advance it, add newness and creativity. And sometimes that comes with uh, a bit of sort of fearless thinking. Now, when you started your own firm, this was right after the recession of the late 80s, early 90s that collapsed Michael Peters. Yeah. And you started it with an, a sense of, of fear. I'm assuming you, you said that that was something that you were pursuing or that yeah. you were interested in. Did you ever worry that you weren't going to be successful? Yeah, I think I did. Um, you know, I had enough money with my two partners to last six months, and we knew we were going to burn through that fast. Had you, had you rented a space? Were you working out of one of your homes? We had rented a space, a small space. We wanted to be professional. We wanted to be, have a space to kind of like feel like it was ours. It was important to do that. And I think I did worry about it. But I actually really thinking about it, it was a very electrifying time. Because I'd stepped out, I'd let, I'd let go. And most people don't want to ever let go. So how did you go about getting your first clients? Did you make phone calls? Did you knock on doors? Yeah, we, I think mobile phones were just coming on stream then. So I remember having a rather weighty Motorola phone. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the digital age hasn't started. So it was about just doing your homework. 
and making connections, you know, making personal relationships and thinking cleverly about something. And there was a, you know, we did a few wacky things that were just like what. Uh, <laughs> I always love the wacky things. Uh, <laughs> you can't say the word wacky. Well, sometimes, and sometimes not you can me get, to say why. <laughs> sometimes you can get it horribly wrong. And uh, well, tell and, us, tell us about one of those then. I'll tell you two stories. I'll tell okay. you one that went horribly wrong and one that went horribly, well, beautifully right. Linda McCartney, when she was alive, um, was uh, had a brand of vegetarian food, and um, and she was a passionate vegetarian. And I'd, I'd always been a bit of a sad sort of Beatles sort of follower, you know. So. I thought, well, you know, start my own company. It'd be nice to write to, you know, Linda McCartney and, and the company owned her brand. And I made this sort of dreadful kind of creative decision to sort of write the letter to her because that was, you know, that was how I decided to do it using a few cheesy interpretations of um, Beatles, Beatles songs. songs you know. Like what? Well, you know, I, I think there was a bit of a pun on let it be was let it beef. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Oh, tell me more. Tell me more. Oh, I can't remember. They're all horrible oh, now. Oh, yes, you, you can. Know, you, you must know. be You just able think to. of your, you know, and, and so, you know, I, for all the listeners that are out there, please bear in mind that this was 18 years ago and <laughs> no, one, no one was giving me any advice whatsoever. Uh, anyway, um, I sent the letter and I followed it up with a phone call and I spoke to the brand manager and I said, did you get the letter? And they were like, no, what letter is that? And I said, well, I, I sent a letter. I had a few funny lines in it. And he said, oh, really? What were they? And I was like, oh, God, no. I've got to tell him what I wrote. And he said, no, come on, tell me what you wrote. And he clearly had got the letter, hadn't found it at all funny. Oh. And I was reduced to the sort of, and, and I suppose really, you know, there is a, there's a point which humor, to, you know, to, you know, you can, you can get humor horribly wrong. Oh, but, Jonathan, I thought this was going to be the good story. No, and then no. you met Linda and you did the packaging no, and well, everybody was happy. Then the, the good story. So I didn't get that. And I, and I learned from that, you know, you, if you're going to have a big idea, you know, maybe it should be even bigger than that. And, uh, <laughs> Well, then many years later, well, actually only about four or five years later, we we sort of, we got this opportunity with Coca-Cola and um, and it was on a, an experiential kind of uh, product. Now, what uh, does that mean, experiential? Well, I probably can't say too much, but let's just say that Coca-Cola were interested in how design could create experiences for them. And, um, and so they set a challenge to, I think, a number of agencies to, you know, win the project. And um, as a pitch, as a, as a sort of, you know, they weren't looking for free work, um, and I never do that anyway. But um, they were interested in the response to the kind of the, um, you know, a, a general idea that would support the reason for approaching us. And uh, we decided that if we were going to give, if we were, it was a, this is all about Coca Cola giving experience. How could we give this person an experience? And so. Um, Test my, my strategist came up with this amazing idea that just sort of blew us away. And it was basically around a coordinated way of giving this person in Atlanta an experience from Pearl Fisher in London. I probably can't really reveal what her name um, is, but let's just say, for example, her name was Katie. Katie suddenly got sustained campaign from people around the world, messages every day with people wearing T-shirts uh, saying, you know, are you Katie? And um, she got this email to her. She got little video clips sent to her. And she didn't know who they were coming from. But every day she got images of people wearing T-shirts saying, are you Katie? And these people getting closer and closer to her until uh, the day that the, uh, the proposal was due to be handed in. We actually decided to invest in sending our creative director to Atlanta on an airplane. And photos were taken of him in Atlanta and were emailed to her. So she was getting this this photo of some guy 
like now in Atlanta, saying, "Are you Katie?" Did you call the police? And he then he then <laughs> he then stood outside the Coca Cola building like an idiot for like you know um, to give him credit, and he's not like an idiot. I mean, he just stood there and bravely, uh, bravely getting noticed. And then his car screeched up, and and so, and, and this guy got out of the car and he said. Are you, are you the people? Are you the agency that is sending, you know, Katie these messages? And uh, and Sean said, Yeah, yeah, I, I am. Yeah, he said, This is great. It's driving her crazy. She's so excited. She wants to know what it all means. And he said, Look, well, I'm, I'm going to help you. We'll be in this bar tomorrow at like twelve o'clock. And uh, if you want, you can turn up. And uh, it was like a lunch thing. And so Sean actually turned up in the bar at 12 o'clock and this woman Katie turned came in and he was wearing the t-shirt saying are you Katie she totally freaked her out that this guy would be there and uh, she said she said who are you he said well I'm you know I'm from Pearl Fisher and um, and we wanted to give you our proposal in person we wanted to give you a Pearl Fisher experience and she said you've won the project and uh, <laughs> well done so you know uh, yeah you know that that what did that take that that came up with a big idea about how you could give somebody an experience from you know one agency to a client and it cost us the flight of somebody going out there and 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 the time and um and it had high drama had high value and uh and it showed that we could deliver on that and and you know we have you have to be these days you still to this very day you have to be you know creative about how you get the way you win business across. And so that was a good example of how uh, some big thinking sort of came through and paid off for us. Now, you mentioned before that you never do free work. And I noticed on your website, you state that your agency won't do three things. You won't do a free pitch. You won't give away free exclusivity. And you won't do unethical work. So I want to talk about two of those. And one is one that you just mentioned. You won't do free work or a free pitch. Talk about why. What we do has a value. Designers are skilled people and we produce a skill. We don't produce a service. And we are not you know, vendors. You know, I hate that. Suppliers. Of, that supplier kind of uh, mentality. So I, I resist that. And every time we get into a conversation around that, I remind our clients that design isn't like anything else. Design adds real value and it can build your brand and it can differentiate you from everyone else. And in a world where everything has gone topsy-turvy you know, and advertising is kind of being fragmented and there are new, whole new channels, design is still tangible and it will define the way to the future for your brand. And that has a value that needs to be respected. You work for free, you're giving away what you do. Um, and that's just bad business sense. You work for low fees for you know under the, your normal rate and you will lose money because you will be diverting a lot of kind of uh, time away from other uh, clients to try and win a piece of business for a low fee. And that doesn't make sense either. It's far more sensible just to say no and get on with the clients that you do have and do great work for them and build the, the value there and the, and, the, and the relationship. And if you say no, it's like an aphrodisiac. People will come back and say, well, okay, well, what do you want, you know? And that's happened many times. And uh, and, I, and I just think designers just have to learn to say, what I do is important, but you'd be surprised there's a lot of people that, that feel like they need to work for free or uh, uh, cut prices. The other thing on your website, one of the other things on your website that you say, state that you won't do is unethical work. Mm. And, you know, there are people that think that branding in and of itself is somewhat unethical. Obviously, we think otherwise. But what what do you mean by unethical work? 
Um, well, the people that think that, I, I think uh, I'd like to see, you know, what clothes they wear, what, what food they buy, <laughs> and what cars they drive. I have no problem with brands at all. I have problems with brands which are um, harmful. Well, harmful to one's health, harmful to yeah. harmful to what? Yeah. Well, I, this is when it comes down, you have to start making some personal sort of mm-hmm. judgments here. So, for example, I won't work in the um, tobacco industry. And so you know, we don't get asked. I mean, you know, every now and then somebody from the industry asks us. But well, I will work in the alcohol industry. So you could say, well, you're a bit, you know, hypocritical, aren't you? Because there's there's lots of sort of, you know, disease related to um, alcohol and so on. But there's also a lot of pleasure related to that. You have to make a judgment uh, about what you think is right and wrong. But certainly uh, I don't think I would be uh, – I would, I would work for a, a brand – that claimed to be one thing but was actually doing so a dishonest else. brand. Yeah. I mean, for example, a, uh, another story here is interesting. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but a, a well-known uh, fast food brand um, wrote to us and asked us to be part of a, of a very big pitch. And they gave us the brief, and the brief kind of made them look like Greenpeace, where in actual fact the product was – you know, nothing like that whatsoever. <laughs> Not Greenpeace, yeah. right? Um, you know, being and it was a convenience, silent fast, green. <laughs> fast food brand, right. and you know, and the brief was all about you know saying the wrong message and perpetuating a non-truth. And uh, so we we on the day that everyone had to give their response, you know, we sent in a, a self-presenting presentation that you just they just had to like press on the play button and they basically got a perspective from us that said we're not going to do this and here are the reasons why it's not because you're not asking us to be paid it's more to do with the fact that your brief is in conflict with actually what we think you're all about and what we think you're all about is in conflict with with where things are going so you need to be thinking about where the future of food is going and the future of health and well-being and you need to place yourself in there and everything you're saying is contrary to that so we respectfully decline the opportunity and um anyway we never heard anything back from them and that was it and then about four years later i got a phone call from their chief marketing officer and he said just want to let you know of all the presentations we ever got that's the one we still talk about because it kicked us in the pants and we'd like you to kind of have a, a go at this new project and uh, would you be interested and we we looked it over and this time they were being truthful to who they were and they were a big fast food brand and they were happy to be that and i don't have a problem working for a fast food brand if it acknowledges what it is and its message is it's using design to express that message in a truthful and desirable way so that's an example of kind of where i think sort of sometimes marketing can get a little bit kind of lost in itself and branding gives itself a bad name because if something claims to be something that isn't then that's not good you're not being true to yourself Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you very much for being on Design Matters. Thank you for having me. You can see more of Jonathan Ford's work on Pearl Fisher's website, www.pearlfisher.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.